Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg. I'm Luke Hector and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. Episode 20, Thematic Experiences. In today's show, we have a brand new segment on recent news in the board gaming world. Then we cover my first impressions of Fleet and Glass Road. And then followed by that, we have a discussion on theme versus mechanics in board games. And then finally ending up with the top 10 thematic games in my humble opinion. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the podcast and sorry it has been a while since episode 19 was put out. It's not only just been busy but there's been quite a lot of developments in the life as of late. Firstly I am looking around at different job opportunities. I am also uh, trying out obviously more games to review and try out on the site. I'm also trying to improve the quality of the videos and the podcast and I've enlisted a friend of mine, Russell from the Southampton On Board Club, who's a bit of an expert when it comes to sort of sound mixing and video lighting, that kind of thing. So he's given me a shopping list of little bits of kit that I needed to buy and I've got some of the kit here that I've borrowed from him for now, but I'm borrowing, sorry, not borrowing, I am buying other bits of kit off eBay And then soon I will have not necessarily a huge studio, but I'll certainly have some better equipment than what I started out with. Hopefully this podcast is an example of how good the voice can now sound when I'm using this sort of equipment. You know, I've got a little mixer, I've got a lapel microphone, I've got a headset so I can hear how I'm talking with a bit of bass. And so far so good. It sounds pretty good, so we're going to see how that goes. On top of that, I've recently met someone, yes, I am no longer a single gamer, I have met a lovely lady, and she's not a board gamer herself, however, she does want to play me at Monopoly at some point soon, I must admit, so then again, all non-gamers have heard of Monopoly, but I'm slowly teaching her a few games in my collection, starting off simple with things like Ticket to Ride, and uh, I hope to try out some two-player games with her at some point, but it's great just to have somebody who is intrigued by my board gaming hobby and hasn't run a mile since learning that I'm into board games so it's great to see that you know there is something for geeks out there you know if you're single and you're still looking then keep at it it may happen but for now what I'm going to do with the podcast is obviously having a girlfriend and other commitments means that time is restricted there's a lot I do in my life and it's difficult to keep things as regular as I would hope So what I'm going to have to do is tone down a few things from the site itself. Now, I try to get at least one review done each week, and I try to get at least one either review or how to play video up each week, and that's usually doable. Uh, But then on top of that, I also have this podcast, and then there's obviously trying out games and going to the clubs anyway. Now, this podcast is normally uh, done every two weeks, but it's getting very hard to maintain two weeks. Sometimes it's every three weeks, so it's it's a little bit on the flexible side with that. I think for now, I'm going to have to do this as a monthly podcast. So one a month, I will do, without fail, a podcast for this site. Now, obviously, 
you know, it's a bit unfair to not bring in something new if I'm going to make it less frequent. So that is why, starting from now, there is going to be a brief news segment at the start of the podcast, which will just go over things that I have heard in the board gaming world. Fairly, fairly briefly, nothing too detailed, but there's a little bit of extra content there for you in case you are wondering if there was going to be anything new to explore. The first impressions are still going to be there, the discussion topics are going to be there, and obviously I love doing the top 10, so they are going to continue as well. We're almost getting up to the one-year anniversary of this site, and at that point I will definitely do my top 10 favorite games, so you will get to hear that list at some point. And of course, it will be a geek list on Board Game Geek, as always. But for now, we're going to go on to thematic games. That's the theme of this episode, all about theme in games. I mostly prefer games with a strong theme. They don't have to be Ameritrash, they can be Euros, but the stronger the theme, the more I like them. This is not necessarily without exception, because obviously, you will remember from my Euro chart, I put Terra Mystica at the top of the list, and everybody knows that that does not have a theme. You know, the theme is so pasted on in that game, it's unbelievable. But I still love it because it mechanically works fine. And we'll get on to a discussion about theme and mechanics later. But for now, let's just... Well, firstly, I'll just apologize that this podcast has taken a while to come out. But, you know, the site is still going. You know, just because I've met someone and I'm trying other things doesn't mean that this site is suddenly going to cave in. It just means that I've got to prioritize what I do in life. And obviously, that means certain things have to be toned down a little bit. So you'll still get reviews, you'll still get videos on how to plays, and you'll still get this podcast with hopefully a nice new sound that means it doesn't sound so amateurish. It's difficult to do a proper podcast when you haven't got your own booth and you live in a flat next to a busy road. But with this setup, I think things are going to progress quite nicely and it will make me more inclined to do more videos and podcasts because I know that I sound good on it. Well, at least I hope I sound good. I need your feedback on this. Did this podcast sound better than others? In which case, let me know. If not, I know I need to tweak the settings a little bit more. So without further ado, let's make a start and get on with the news. First up, Terra Mystica has announced that there is a new expansion coming later this year called Fire and Ice. Now, just the other day at Southampton Club, we were playing Terra Mystica and we were commenting that the only way you could really expand Terra Mystica is just to simply include more races, because if you include any more mechanics, I think the game would just get far too convoluted and there's already a lot in the game as it is and you certainly don't need extra boards. But what they are doing is that they are bringing out more races that you can play that are linked to the terrain types you already have. And we've got things like Yetis, the Master of Power, We've got Ice Maidens, who love their temples, Acolytes, who are focused more on the cults, and Dragon Lords, who use their power to create volcanoes. And then on top of that, we've also got Shapeshifters and Riverwalkers, who apparently have more than one terrain type attributable to them. So that's quite an interesting uh, twist on the races. But basically, it's going to be more factions that you can play. And I haven't even tried out every single faction in Terra Mystica yet, so the fact that there's more, a huge selection, it's just going to make the variability in this game go off the charts, and it's just going to make this a top Euro for many more months and possibly years to come. So I'm excited about that. That's a Fire and Ice expansion. Check it out on Board Game Geek for a few more details. (laughs) 
Rob Davieu and Matt Leacock have announced recently that they will be working on a project called Pandemic Legacy. The Legacy is, sorry, Legacy is a mechanic that is famous with Risk Legacy, where when you play the game, certain things can happen that change the board for future games. So you might find that areas are blown up and you can't use them again. You might get more points for a different area that you control in a future game. It's a really cool mechanic, but so far has only been used with Risk. And what is going to happen now is that it's going to be moved on to the Pandemic universe and Pandemic being the co-op where you fight diseases and save the world. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Pandemic that there ever was. I think of it more as an abstract game on the iOS rather than a decent co-op because it can be alpha-gamed a lot. It's all about optimization, really, at the end of the day. And I don't think the theme is as strong in that game as I would like compared to a lot of co-ops. It's not to say I hate the game, I just prefer playing it as a puzzle rather than a co-op with theme. However, the concept of having the legacy mechanic put on it, so that maybe some areas of the world are so disease-ridden you can't even go through them, or a disease might be wiped out entirely in future games, or something might resurface later, it's just really, it sounds like a really cool concept, and this might be what Pandemic needs to push it out of what I believe to be an abstract genre, and more into the cooperative thematic thing. I mean, especially if it's still co-op. If it's uh, like trying to beat the game as before, then that should work pretty well. If you're against other players, I'm not sure it will have the same effect. But we don't know much about when this is going to come out. They're still designing it, obviously. But this will be hot. It will be the hotness when it comes out. You just know it's going to sell. So I'm excited for that as well, Pandemic Legacy. Upper Deck Entertainment has just released in America the Villains Standalone Expansion to Marvel Legendary. Marvel Legendary being the deck building game where you recruit all the heroes from the Marvel Universe and use them to fight against villains and masterminds also from the Marvel Universe. And you've got X-Men, you've got the Avengers, you've got the Spider-Man, friends and foes. There's all sorts you can get in there, loads of combinations. And it's a really quality game, even though I do prefer Sentinels and the Multiverse, in my opinion. Villains is a standalone expansion, it works on its own, but you can also combine it with the original Legendary, and basically it just flips the tables around. So instead of playing the heroes against a mastermind villain, you are playing the villains against a commander hero. The mechanics work pretty much the same way, except there are subtle differences between um, as to like the villains you've got, and also the idea that you can sort of, well, you're working together, yet you can still rag on each other. In the original Legendary, it was given that you pretty much just played the game as a co-op, because even though there was a Most Valuable Player award for whoever had the most victory points, it didn't really feel that thematic and people mostly ignore it, because after all, you're trying to win the game. With villains, though, it makes more sense, because villains do group together, but they always have their own agenda. There's rarely a villain who isn't just downright selfish. So the idea that you are working together sort of, but yet you're trying to make things life harder for other players whilst you're helping them, is that sounds more cool and I can't wait for this to become available in Europe. My only fear though is that if it's anything like the original Marvel Legendary, it's going to take a while before it comes over here and because of license issues it's going to cost a bomb. So I may be tempted to get this direct from the US and see how it goes. But that's Marvel Legendary Villains.
And finally, for some Kickstarter news, Dungeon Lords, the fifth anniversary, has been put on Kickstarter as in progress, and it's got about, say, two weeks and a bit to fund. It's already funded, but it's got two weeks left for more backers to join up. Dungeon Lords was a Euro game where you were in control of a dungeon and you were building it up, waiting for heroes to come in and hopefully fend them off. You wanted the best dungeon at the end of the day. It's had mixed reviews and I've yet to try this game out, but I would like to because it does sound like quite a funny theme. But what they're doing here is that they're bringing back a effectively a fifth anniversary edition of the game. It's going to include the festival season expansion that came with the original and it's going to have some better components, and it's effectively just a re-release. So you'll get a little mini expansion for setting up dungeons, you'll get the festival proper expansion, and you'll get some stickers for tokens, metal coins, so an improvement in quality across the board. Sounds like a good deal. Um, it's going to cost about $80, though, for you to be a backer for a copy of the game, and I don't know if that's also including shipping to the UK, because obviously in the, I think it's mostly based in the US, these things. But still, you're talking $80, so this is not going to be a cheap Kickstarter. So you have to know that you will fancy this game before you grab the Kickstarter. So I would suggest find someone who's got it, play it, see what you think, and then if you like it at all, then go Kickstart this one rather than buying a current one yourself, because obviously you're going to get more bang for your buck by doing so. Now onto some games that I've played recently, the most notable of which has been Fleet, which is by Griffin Games, and it's a small little card game, but it's based on a theme that I don't think has been done before, which is fishing vessels. It's a strategic card game with decisions and gameplay that even they boast that new and experienced gamers can enjoy, and I have to admit, it certainly does have a pretty low entry to the game, so I think new gamers can get into this. The idea is, is that you will acquire licenses to fish different types of fish. So we're talking lobster, shrimp, uh, king crabs, that kind of thing. With these licenses, you will then launch boats, which will slowly gain fish over the course of the game. The idea being that the cards themselves form multiple functions. They represent money, they represent the ships you can launch, and the different license cards are separate, which give you bonuses during the game and victory points for the end. The fish that you collect are victory points, the boats that you have are victory points at the end of the game, so there's multiple paths to victory, and essentially you just keep playing cards and managing your hand, buying ships, buying licenses, launching ships, etc., until eventually the pile depletes, so all the fish have been fished effectively, there's a limited supply of fish cubes effectively, and the strongest fleet eventually wins the game. It's a nifty little card game, I have to admit, the theme is not overly strong. I mean, it's effectively just doing fishing vessels. There's no like particular link between the bonuses and the type of fish that you're getting, but it is quite a nice little strategic card game. And again, it's very easy to teach, very easy to play, and yet it has multiple paths to victory and has a little bit of strategy in there. I don't think this is going to be one for my collection though, because I don't. I I feel that it's good for a few plays but then perhaps you might get slightly bored with it because there's only, I don't know, the theme isn't overly strong, so it's more a sort of strategic card game. And I, I don't know, it, it was nice, but I think this is going to go down the route of Splendor for me. 
where you will enjoy it a few times, but then you know that you're just going to get bored with it eventually. It's also a bit expensive here in the UK. I mean, the cards are good quality, linen finished and that, but you're talking over £20 for this small game. I, I don't like paying £20 to £25 for what is effectively just about 50-odd cards. It would be nice if it was a little bit cheaper, but that's a minor niggle. But in general, the, the game is good. It works on auctions, and you know, auctions are not something I particularly like in games, but I was willing to accept that this game is actually pretty good and handles its auction mechanic well. So I think give it a try. See what you think. You might like it better than I do, especially if you like auction games, but it's not going to make my collection, but I think it's a solid little card game anyway. Fleet by Griffin Games. And next up from the Portsmouth on board group was a game called Glass Road, which is by Uri Rosenberg. Now, I quite like a lot of Uri Rosenberg's Euros so far. I like Agricola, even though I prefer his sequel Caverna. La Havre is a good game, and I hear good things about Aura and the Bora, and uh, I believe, no, no, Bora Bora is not his, Aura and the Bora is his own game though, and he was also the creator of Bonanza. Now, Glass Road is another Euro game by him that consists of building up buildings on your little map like most building development games are except in this you have 15 specialist cards these are basically it's like role selection each specialist has two abilities and at the beginning of each round you have to choose a hand of five specialists you but the problem is is that you have to everybody's got the same hand of specialists and they've chosen five you have to figure out which ones you need for their abilities, but also be careful as to what your opponents might be using. Because if any player other than yourself also has that, then effectively they cancel out and you can only use one of the two abilities that they've got. So it effectively nerfs you. If you're lucky enough that you've played a specialist that no one else has chosen, you get the full use of the card. With the resources and money and actions that you get from these you will chop down pond sorry ponds you will chop down trees and clear ponds and pits or even add them to your map and you'll build a variety of buildings including processing buildings so turning resources into uh, more useful products because it's called glass road and effectively you are able to use things like uh, water and charcoal and wood etc to make brick and glass which is used to build some of the better buildings You've also got immediate buildings that have a one-time effect, and then buildings that provide bonus points at the end of the game, and like La Havre, you know, the buildings themselves are worth victory points, and have, you know, there'll be, it'll range from having a selection of ponds in a particular way, it will have ones like have the most of this particular resource and get points. There's a lot of different paths to victory, but my only beef with this game though and it's a pretty big beef is the selection of the 15 specialist cards now libertalia has this slight issue for me in citadels for example you've only got to think about eight characters and so when you've got several of you playing you've got more of an idea as to which one somebody has chosen in libertalia you've got so many pirates to think about across the board that you're not entirely certain that you can ever really guess what other players are going to use and in this it's the same deal because all the specialists are pretty useful in their own way, and if you've got multiple players, then chances are there's going to be a lot of specialists that you're just going to be unable to get the full use of, because pretty much everybody will choose them. And also, 
even though you're supposed to try and figure out what other players are using, there's no way that you are going to be able to suss out what exactly what the other three have taken. So there seems to be a bit of a random luck element in whether you'll get the full use of your specialists. And if you just end up being that one guy who ends up getting nerfed to high heaven as a result of other people picking a specialist, then you're going to fall behind and you're not really going to do that well in the game. So it's not too bad. And I do love the dials that you've got, which show the resources that you have. And depending on what resources you get more of, the dials move to say whether they've converted them into brick or glass or whether you suddenly lost them and that kind of thing. It's a very nifty little mechanic, if somewhat clunky, I suppose. The artwork on all the tiles and the cards is it's not it's nothing spectacular, but it's nice and colourful, so it does look more interesting when it's set up on the table. But there's a lot of different ways to play. There's a lot of different buildings, so there's plenty of variety in this game. But it's going to come down to whether you are a fan of the idea that you've got to guess what other people are playing and just hope that you don't get nerfed by it. With certain with citadels, like I say, you've only got to think about a few, but when you're trying to concentrate on your own thing and then think about like five out of fifteen characters that three other players might be choosing, you're gonna be overwhelmed with trying to guess which one exactly they've got, and you just might be unfortunate as to what gets picked at the end. I remember winning it when I tried it, and you know, I, I think it was only just, I don't think it was a landslide victory, but I was fairly fortunate that I wasn't getting screwed over by a lot of the specialists. I wasn't necessarily sure who was going to pick what. I just happened to be doing something different from the others. But I do remember that the person who, used, who basically got screwed over quite a lot in that respect pretty much lost the game outright. So that random element in there is what puts me off really liking this game. But I was glad to give it a try because it is quite popular. And that little dial mechanic with the, the resource management is probably the best thing in this game actually with those dials. I think the resource management is great, but I think the role selection mechanic could be improved and that's why this probably won't be a purchase point for me. But again, if you like Uri Rosenberg's Euros, I suggest you give this a try and find out for yourself. Glass Road by Uri Rosenberg. And now just to talk briefly about theme and mechanics when it comes to board games. There's a lot of debate that goes on in the board gaming world about whether a game is better if it has more theme or whether it has better well-designed mechanics. Now, I will happily say that I'm a fan of theme in board games and the stronger the theme, the better. But I would also have to say that you can't have a game that is completely like absorbed in its theme and yet has mechanics that are just horrible. You know, there are plenty of games out there that can do that. But then on the flip side, if the game is that mechanically sound, it's going to have to be really good and have something like really good going for it if it's going to make me forget the fact that it has no theme. I mentioned Terra Mystica earlier and the good thing about that is that even though it's pretty much got a pasted on theme, what gets me with it, not just because it's got great mechanics, is because of the variety in the races you can be. If, the, if, if it was fairly static as to what you could be, that game probably wouldn't be as highly rated in my books as it is, but the fact that there's a lot of variety in the game just makes it so that I can forget the fact that it has no theme and concentrate on its mechanics, which are just sound. But thematic games certainly do get a vote for me. That's why I like co-op games quite a lot, because I think co-ops are easier ones to get theme in, and I think a lot of co-ops out there sort of 
focus on the theme of the game in order to bring people in. There aren't many co-ops I know out there where it is simply just plain abstract. And I mentioned Pandemic earlier, even though I think it's more of an abstract game, it's still got some theme to it. So I'm not going to say it's devoid of theme. So there's certainly elements for co-op games, but when people think thematic games, they tend to think um, Arkham Horror, for example, and then they think these mammoth games like Descent and Twilight Imperium 3, that kind of thing, all the, the really epic opera games, effectively, that get you doing all sorts with armies and adventurers, that kind of thing, and, you know, a thematic story is told. Now, there's, I suppose, it depends on what you like, you know, I'm more interested in the theme of a game. So, Ghost Stories, for example, I love its theme on sort of the Asian Asian monks and ghosts, that sort of thing. Uh, Flashpoint Fire Rescue has a good theme with its firefighting. Uh, any game with superheroes, if it fails on its theme, then the game just fails because it's one of the best themes that you can put in a board game. You know, it's one of the easier ones. You can certainly get the theme to bring out with superheroes. But that's not to say I don't like Euro games, and Euro games tend to push the theme to one side and leave itself with the mechanics. But again, you can be surprised by that Euros tend to have some theme in places. Agricola and Caverna probably being the two best examples there. You know, in Agricola, you are building up your farm with animals and plant crops and that sort of thing, and you've got the cards that say, whether, you know, with occupations and improvements you can make to your farm. And for a Euro game, the theme is pretty strong in that one. Everything you do feels like you're building a farm because you see it set out on the table. And I think that's actually where games can bring their theme out best when you see that element of progression in the game itself. Agricola, like I say, you start off with this blank field and then you slowly watch the farm build up. Now, in certain games, you'll find that it's just do this round, reset, do this round, reset, do this round, reset. And you don't necessarily feel like the theme is that strong. Uh, looking at my shelf, I'm going to point out, let's see, straight away, Kingsburg. Kingsburg, you have basically some buildings that you can build, but they're just represented by little tokens throughout the game. And you play it over five years, and at the end of each year, it effectively resets and you start again with whatever you just had carried over. Now, you know, that's an example where the theme isn't overly strong, and that one's playing more to its mechanics, which are pretty nice, easy-flowing, and good for new gamers. So that's why Kingsburg is liked by a lot of people. Uh... To go with another Euro I'm looking at now, Lords of Waterdeep. Now, that has the Dungeons & Dragons theme on it, but that's more of a bait and switch because the theme is fairly dry in Lords of Waterdeep. Now, the theme's not non-existent. If you look at the quests carefully in Lords of Waterdeep, you can see that, for example, you'll have one that says, Free the Fighters. You get a bunch of fighters when you free them, you know, by doing the quest. And there are some other ones, like, you know, the Arcana ones are pretty good for that, where, you know, you mess around with certain spells as part of a quest, and you happen to get more mages, or you get a really cool transmuting effect with money and workers. So they do have a theme in there. But Lords of Waterdeep has just got such nice, easy-flowing mechanics that the fact that the D&D theme is tacked on doesn't really matter. It's just, it works so well. And I think that's what Euro games will focus more on. A thematic game will try, will maybe have some weirder mechanics, but the theme will be so strong that you're willing to overlook the mechanics. A Euro will go the opposite way and have strong mechanics, 
that are strong enough for you to overlook the fact that it has no theme. Now, obviously, an ideal game has an element of both. So I would say 50-50 down the middle. Enough theme that it grabs you, but decent mechanics so that it pulls you in. But, you know, some of my favorite games I have are usually one way or the other. Uh, like I said, Terra Mystica, rarely devoid of theme, but it's my, my favorite Euro game that I own at the moment. So, you know, you can like any game you like as long as something grabs you, whether it's a mechanic or a theme. Now, there's some discussions, I think ludologists have this discussion going where, you know, some games are based more on the mechanics and some games are based on the narrative more than anything else. And there's a huge debate going on between them as to which one's preferable. And you will get some people who think that, you know, the game should be more mechanical or the game should be more thematic. I think there's nothing wrong with the game having either or, or a bit of both, really, because in the end, it's just a case of what do you want in the game? You know, diehard Euros players aren't desperate for theme. They're more interested in a game that's just fun to play mechanically. Um, Ameritrash lovers are going to go more for conflict, and as such, they're going to want thematic games to play. Me, I'm kind of a bit of both. I would say I'm... I don't know, looking at my collection, I've got a fairly even mix of uh, Ameritrash and Euro games. I don't think it's skewed one way or the other, though I will definitely say there is a greater number of co-ops than any other genre that is represented on that shelf. So definitely, at least that's my favourite genre, and that genre does lend itself to thematic games. So I would probably say I'm leaning more towards that camp. But, you know, I still need good mechanics, and if I'm going to teach it to other people, I need the mechanics to be easy to understand. So that's effectively just what I think on the subject. You know, theme first with mechanics. I'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say. Which one do you prefer? Do you think theme is more important? Do you think mechanics is more important? Are you happy with a little bit of both? And are there any particular games that you think um, are an example of where it goes so far down the one extreme, but does it so well that you overlook the fact that it doesn't have others. I mentioned Terra Mystica as a good example of a very good mechanical Euro game that is so strong that you overlook its theme. I'd be interested to know if there's a game out there that you like which has a, such a strong theme that you don't care that the game is rather clunky. I think those games are rarer than the other side, but I'd be interested to hear whether you know of any games that are like that, you know, fairly clunky, fairly dodgy mechanics, but the theme is so strong that you just want to play it and get sucked into the theme. That's a rarer genre, and I'd be interested to hear if you know any examples on that. But that's just a brief thing. Theme versus mechanics, what do you think? For now, I'm getting on with the top 10. And now we're on to the top 10 thematic games. Now, when I put this list together it wasn't easy there was quite a lot of games in this category that I could choose from now the way I've put this list together these are not necessarily my favorite 10 games that have theme in them the idea is that these are 10 games that I play and enjoy that I feel bring out the theme stronger than other choices so not only is the theme strong, but I also enjoy playing the game, and the combination of the two is how I've ranked these games. You will probably notice that there are several games on this list that I don't own myself, and I'll explain more about those as I go into them. 
But for now, let's make a start. I'm sure there's going to be some disagreements as to what's in here, and I've seen many other top 10 thematic games lists in the past, from the Dice Tower and Radu Runs Through, and even on Board Game Geek. There is a lot of variation into what people believe is a thematic game, and which one they actually enjoy. So, I'm not expecting a great deal of crossover here, but I'll be interested to see what you guys think after this podcast, and when I put the list up on Board Game Geek. So without further ado, the top 10 thematic games. 10. Number 10 I class as Aliens the board game. That is effectively the best way you can describe it. Now, the game itself has some fairly clunky mechanics, and there are some issues with the rulebook and the way that some things are explained, which does hurt it when you're trying to play the game. But... Nobody can deny that this is Aliens, the board game, and that when it gets going right, the theme comes out very strongly, and that is Omega-7 Protocol, or I think it might be Level 7, no, Level 7 Omega Protocol, that's the way it's phrased, and it's played similarly to Descent, where you have, instead of a Dungeon Master, you have an Overseer, quote-unquote, and you have the players who play Marines with different class abilities and different stances, that go into a deserted space station or some other uh, similar wreckage and have to complete objectives whilst fending off the aliens. Now the unique thing about this game that I like is that the normally with these games you, the overseer or the dungeon master, dungeon lord, whatever you want to call them, just simply controls the monsters and they have their little abilities. Well that applies in this as well except it runs off an adrenaline system and depending on how much adrenaline the players spend to do their actions the Overseer gets loads of adrenaline tokens to use for his aliens, and he can do all sorts of things like boost their speed, uh, make them come out of vents in the wall, cause cave-ins, stuff like that. So you get these really cool things that the evil player can do that are thematic. You know, you would expect this to happen if you're watching Aliens, for example. I mean, it is pretty much Aliens, the board game. It is a claustrophobic space environment with Marines and aliens going off against each other. It's such a shame that this couldn't have just got the license to do the alien universe and actually had Hicks and Hudson and all Ripley and all that lot going up against the Xenomorphs in the space station with this format. Because if it did, I would not hesitate and I would go out and buy this game regardless. You know, that would just be awesome. But this game in general is good fun. It just takes a bit of getting into with the rules and that. But if you can get at least, say, three or four human players and an overseer to play this, I recommend you give it a shot. Omega 7, sorry, level 7, Omega Protocol. 9. Number 9 is effectively the space opera epic of space games. It's one that you can't just simply put it down and play. You have to organize this as an event. You have to basically plan months in advance, it seems, get all the babysitters you can send your wife's out to play somewhere, I don't know. You just can't bring this to the table and say, right, we're playing this tonight. You have to arrange this far in advance, and that's Twilight Imperium 3. This is about as epic as a space game can possibly get. You have your own unique race with its own special ability. You are able to build little fighters, you're able to build little trading ships, like diplomacy ships, you're able to build armada flagships and destroyers, and you are completing objectives that involve that may involve colonizing planets, killing enemies, uh, being a good tradesman, that kind of thing. 
and there's political intrigue in the background which I must admit doesn't get particularly strong unless you use the expansion with the uh, political advisors and stuff. It's a little bit tacked on in previous editions which is why this doesn't quite go higher up the list. But in general the game really does have a strong space opera epic theme. Now the only thing is this game does take at least six plus hours to play and you know if you've got anybody who's AP prone it's going to drag it out even more and the fact that it just takes so long to set up and put away you know it hurts the ability to play this game on a regular basis I mean if you are able to play this game regularly then seriously how on earth do you manage your time or do you do anything else because seriously that is a lot of spare hours that you've got if you can play something like this regularly but it is a really good game it's as good as a space game is going to get you know Eclipse Go Home and I've not played Exodus and Empire of the Void as much as I like that game it's the theme is okay in it and it does have a reason well the theme is reasonably good in it but the mechanics of it and the way it works makes it shy off this list I would say that Empires of the Void would be in my top 15 top 20 at a push but I reckon it would still make a top 15 list but it's not quite good enough to reach the top 10 and that's why Twilight Imperium 3 is the epic that's going to take the number 9 spot. 8. Number 8 could be seen as a slightly controversial choice by some, but I see a lot of theme in this and I do really enjoy this game and that's Marvel Legendary. Marvel Legendary is a deck builder where you are recruiting different heroes to fight against a mastermind villain. Who And what brings the theme out for this one is that you can set up pretty much any team or matchup that you feel like from the series and the comics or anything that you just felt like seeing in action. And the, the schemes are also very unique in the sense that there are so many of them. The variety in this game is unbelievable. And you know you can set up the perfect Avengers team and say, right, we are playing this game and we are going to have you know, the Hulk and Hawkeye and Nick Fury and all those guys fending off against Loki. You, know, you could do the Avengers film in this game. You could even do an X-Men themed one against Magneto. You could even do the Fantastic Four now versus Galactus. You can have the Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man and his friends and foes against the Kingpin. You know, you can do these classic comic battles that you've seen and read and reenact them. Now, it doesn't go higher up the list because of the deck building element, because a lot of people scoff at the theme for simply the fact that your deck is a myriad of different heroes and it doesn't seem like, you know, you feel like the hero that you're trying to be. And I see where they're coming from on that, and that's why this doesn't go higher up the list. But if you just accept that you're, you know, you're controlling a team of heroes rather than just one, then you can see the theme coming out more. And I just think the way that you can set up these cool battles dictated by what comics or TV series you've read really does add to it. I mean, it is good fun to do the Avengers versus Loki. And I think the next game I'm going to do... Uh, which, which one do I fit? I think I'm going to do an X-Men themed one against Apocalypse next time. But I had a recent game with uh, Galactus versus the Fantastic Four, and I think that's one of the strongest themed games I've ever played of Marvel Legendary. It just worked really well. Is it the best superhero thematic game out there? Well, let's see if it, any others appear on the rest of this list. Seven. Number 7 is a game I don't own and it's probably a game that you'll only get me to play if I'm prepared for it or if we've made it an event setting. 
because this is my only flaw with the game is that it just takes a bit long to set up and it is quite a long game to play. This can drag out quite a while. But there is no denying that the theme in this game is very strong regardless of whether you've watched the TV series that it's based on and that's Battlestar Galactica. With Battlestar Galactica, you are a, it's a co-optic game where the humans are effectively trying to escape the Cylons, but there is the potential of one, maybe even two, Cylon traitors on the ship, and you don't even know if the traitor is there from the word go. There is a round where you are given your loyalty cards at the very start, and you might be lucky, there might be no Cylons on the ship. But then you are given another loyalty card halfway through the game, which may make you a sleeper agent, meaning that you were good, and then suddenly you become evil. But the way the theme is brought out in this is just the way that the banter with everybody on the table when you're accusing people of being Cylons, where you're doing, you're trying to pass all the crisis cards that come out and you're distrusting each other and you just feel hopeless, like the whole mission's going to fail. The theme is very strong in this and it is a very good co-op, but what puts me off wanting it is just its length. It really comes into its own with expansions, but once you've got some of those expansion modules in there, it does lengthen the game and it does increase the setup time. And not even every bit of the expansion is even worth doing. You know, I like the Cylon leader agendas, those are pretty cool. The plastic ships are really cool and the extra little board that Cylons can use when they're like kicked off the ship. It's, there are some cool aspects to them, but then you've got ones like, you know, the, the Daybreak expansion, I think just adds a load of ways to extend the game length even more. And that's just ugh, wrong. You know, I, when people suggest, do you want to play Battlestar Galactica, I find myself looking at my watch most of the time thinking, hmm, you know, I'll, uh, do I really want to play a game that long, you know, because it, it's just on that borderline of what I would class as acceptable for a game length, but it's good fun when I have played it, so I will play it every now and again, it's just not going to be one that I would get to the table regularly, but I can't deny the theme in BSG is very, very strong. Get the right group of people and you will have a blast. Battlestar Galactica. Six. Number six is a storytelling game. Now, the idea with the storytelling game is that effectively it's not so much about the winning, it's more the experience. And I'm surprised I don't see this game on a lot of top ten formatic games lists. The Dice Tower didn't have it, nor did Radu. I don't seem to see it on others, and I don't get why. Because, you know, people on Board Game Geek do suggest it as a formatic game. And I think the theme is pretty strong in it, and that's Tales of the Arabian Nights. In Tales of the Arabian Nights, you are controlling one of the characters from that setting, like Aladdin, Sinbad, etc. And you are going out across, um, effectively, the Middle East. And everywhere you go, you will have an encounter with anything from a crafty beggar to a, a, well, a crafty beggar to an angry witch to a hopeless jailer you know, to a scornful mage, you know, and different, all these different things you'll encounter, and you have a matrix chart of all the reactions that you can do. So what will you do with the crafty beggar? I will beat him, rob him, trick him, talk to him, question him, avoid him, pray for him, you know, all the different things, and they all have different outcomes that you read from this gigantic book of tales, which is such a heavy book, it's so cool to wield it in your hand. And it's effectively those the big board game version of those fighting fantasy books that you used to read as a kid where you would read the paragraph and it would say roll the die and do this and if you succeed go to page 226 you know that kind of thing those were always really enjoyable as a kid and this is the board game version and even though you would probably ignore the game winning aspect of this 
it's just really good thematic fun to read out the stories and see what happens to your character and effectively tell your own story. It's a great laugh to play. I wouldn't play it with more than four players because it gets a little bit long-winded. And what I tend to do with this game is I tend to say, look, you're trying to get 10 of each of Story and Destiny points. Leave it at that. None of that random, like, 16, 4, 12, 8, you know, point selection at the start of the game. That's all rubbish. And don't play until somebody wins. Play for, say, 90 minutes, 2 hours max, and then flip the table and see who's in the lead. That's the best way, I think, of playing it. But I think some people have done some pretty good variants on Board Game Geek that I would like to give a try soon. So that's my number six, Tales of the Arabian Nights. Five. Five is probably going to be the most controversial choice on this list. People are going to wonder whether the theme is that strong in it, especially when compared to certain other games. Now with this, the theme may be argued to be not as strong as a couple of other games on this list, but in terms of the enjoyment factor, it is a really good game to play, and a part of that is down to how well the theme is interwoven between the different factions, or gods, shall we say, that you can play, and that's Chaos in the Old World. Chaos in the Old World is a hybrid game, so it's part Euro, part Ameritrash. The Ameritrash being that you fight each other and there's a lot of conflict, but the Euro aspects of getting victory points and area control on the board. But the way the theme this the way the theme comes out in this game is that the board itself is effectively some rolled up skin nailed down. The gods are all very unique and they all play very differently. If you are playing corn, you have got all your blood letter miniatures and the cultists, and you are just beating stuff up. As the Nurgle, you are corrupting the landscape. As Sanesh, you have lots of tricks up your sleeve for seducing and uh, corrupting the other people in play. Zenich or Zench or Zenich, you know, whatever you want to pronounce them as. Uh, the blue ones with the chicken god, basically, I like to call them. Uh, are the magic users, so you've got all these funky little spells that you can cast in order to influence the game. And with the expansion, you can play a Skaven, which swarm the area with lots of rats. And it just plays out. It's thematic in the sense that you feel like the god you've chosen. It's asymmetrical, but the game is very well balanced. And however you play dictates well, what god you play has a bear overbearing effect on your style of play. You know, are you going to be more violent? Are you going to go for corrupting landscape? Are you just going to wipe out the other players? That kind of thing. And it just really, you really brings out that Warhammer Chaos God theme well. I think this is the best implementation of a Warhammer themed board game that there has been to date. I can't, I don't think that Relic is as good as this. I think this one tops the Warhammer themed board game chart in my opinion. So if you don't believe me, check it out. I think you will enjoy it. And if you've got the expansion, even better, it improves a lot of the cards in the game brings in the Skaven, and when you've got a four or five player game, uh, I think it goes to five players, but certainly four at least, all playing different gods, the theme comes out really well. So that's number five, Chaos in the Old World. Four. Number four is similar to Level 7 Protocol. I'm never going to get that name right this entire podcast, am I? But uh, I digress. It's similar to Omega Protocol, except instead of Aliens the board game, this is effectively Hero Quest 2.0, I would like to call it. And that is, funny enough, Descent 2.0. Uh, 
Descent 2.0 is similar to Omega Protocol, but it came first, where you have your fantasy adventurers, and you have the overlord in this version, I believe it's called, and you play through a campaign of quests where all the different quests feel very unique with lots of different objectives. You have your miniatures on the table with tiles that represent different terrain and areas. There's a story plot arc you're following rather than it being just strictly scenario based. Your character levels up with experience and gains new abilities and effectively gets better and you become more attached to him. You get more items as the campaign progresses and it just tells a really good story and the theme just comes out really strongly of that fantasy adventuring setting. This is what I would rather play than any D&D roleplay game at the moment. I get bored with roleplays quick and I don't like the way you have to commit time all the time in order to be there for the group. With this one though, you can put it away and then pick up and play it when you've got a time that you guys can meet up fine and even if you want to sit out, it's not the end of the world, you can just rejoin in a different scenario. But with this, the theme is very strong as you're leveling up your adventurer, cooperating with your other uh, mates, or well I say cooperating, there are times where I've been left for dead on occasion for the greater good, that's, I suppose that's thematic in some sense, but why is it always me that seems to get left for the greater good it seems in these games? And it's just a really cool fantasy game, I don't own it because I already know a friend who has pretty much every expansion for it, so I'm not going to shell out the cash for it myself, but I miss playing this game, I really want to continue the campaign that we started and never quite finished. Unfortunately, you know, when you're married and have other commitments, it's difficult to get host tonight for this sort of thing. But I look forward to playing this again. That's Descent 2.0, my number four. Three. And now we're back to the world of co-ops. With number three, it's Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Now, Flashpoint Fire Rescue is one of my favorite co-ops I have in my collection. And I believe that when you are playing this game, you are really cooperating with other players. You know, every action you take is a good action that you can take. So you never feel like someone's alpha gaming you across the place because everything you do is worthwhile. Therefore, you are in line to make your own decisions easier. And I like how each fireman has its own ability. I like the maps that have been brought out. So you can play it in apartment buildings, uh, high-rise skyscrapers normal houses, two-story buildings, two-story garages, three-story labs even. And I think if it was just the base game, it would probably be lower on the list. But I think that with Extreme Danger, the theme really got brought out because you had more things you could do and the variety in the, the buildings you had was even better. It brought in the garage and the lab, which are very cool locations. It brought in the attic and the basement boards which allow you to just customize other places by adding extra levels to them. And with the basement in particular, you also get floor damage rules. So, you know, explosions can cause the floor to collapse, which happens in normal firefighting buildings. The fire itself spreads and can just burst out anywhere. That is pretty thematic in my book because you can't predict where fire is going to go. You can't puzzle it out. Sometimes a fire is kept under control and sometimes it erupts into an inferno. And it's just the way it happens in real life. People scoff at it for being random in that respect, but I think that's actually a strength of the game. You know, fire, like I said, is not predictable. So why should you be able to predict or game how the fire is going to spread? No, there should be times where you think, well, eh, it's just a little bit of smoke there. It's not really going to be a major problem. And then all of a sudden, fire explosion, hazardous material explosion, boom, you know, and the whole thing collapses. 
It's really good in the way it does that. You can also control fire engines, you can grab ladders and climb up to windows of buildings. I mean, yeah, you, you know, you're saving the dog and the cat, but then, to be honest, does a fireman go into a building and, when he can't find anything else, see a dog and just go, meh, it's the dog, then get a new one, that's okay. No, they're not going to, they're going to try and save the dog, aren't they? So I've got no problem with that. Though it is quite amusing hearing people's reactions when we're so desperately trying to save the cat and it seems to be the, the be-all or end-all of the game that we must get the cat out. Saying that though, the last game we played, the cat seemed to be the one responsible for starting a fire in the kitchen and burned to death in the sink. So that probably served the cat right in that respect. But that's the first time I've ever had the cat die on me, so that was a little bit sad. Oh well, but number three, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, very fermented co-op, give it a shot. Number two is a little bit of a cheat because I'm including two games at number two, funny enough, no pun intended. But the reason why I'm including two games here is because they play so similarly that I feel it's, it wouldn't do justice to only include one or to try and rank them differently. I think they both achieve the same thematic experience, whether you prefer the more sort of uh, adventure type that one does or the more horror setting that the other one does. I'm of course talking about Eldritch and Arkham Horror. Now, if I was to compare the two games and say which one is best, that would be one of the hardest questions ever. Arkham Horror is more epic, and I believe the immersion in it is better than Eldritch slightly. But Eldritch is much more streamlined to play, it's easier to get other people into it, and it happens on a global scale, and the condition cards where things flip over at random times, depending on what you've done, tell a very nice story for your personal character. But then Arkham Horror also has the relationship cards, it has the, you know, it has more immersive rules with particular Elder Gods. You've also got the injury cards that you can get as well. So, you know, there's immersion in both games, but when you are playing this, the immersion is just there. It really sucks you in because you, you know, it's co-op and you're fighting the Elder Gods, but everywhere you go and have that encounter, you've got an interesting horror story, you know, I'm not even, I'm not going to say fluff, because fluff sounds like it's not needed, but you, you know, you tell a story with every encounter, and you are reading a lot of these encounters, it's almost like playing Tales of the Arabian Nights in a horror setting, except in this case you actually do have an objective, and that is beat the Elder God, but throughout the game it's tense, there's more monsters spring up all over the place, you get items, you level up your character, and since, you know, it gets, it improves its skills, and it just comes down to those encounters. The encounters really spice up the game and get you immersed in its story. In Eldritch Horror, you've got those condition cards that, you know, when you take one or when you use a particular spell, depending on how well you did the spell, for example, will dictate a different effect. There's, uh, it's so immersive, those games. And I can't decide between the two of them as to which one is more immersive. I would just say that whichever you feel like you prefer, whether it's Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror, try one of them out. It's going to be one of the best thematic experiences that you can get. A little bit clunky maybe on the side of Arkham Horror, there's a, more rules to put into play, but Eldritch Horror is very streamlined, although I wouldn't say it was the simplest game either. You know, there are still FAQs you might need to read for both, but those encounter cards do make the game very immersive. Not quite the number one, but it came close. Number one. Number one for me is a 
basically it fits both criteria. It, the theme is very strong in this game and it's also one of my favorite games that I've ever played. In this, every game I play of this, the theme just oozes off the cards and it, the story of each battle grips me at every turn, mainly because of the artwork on the cards lays out in a really cool comic book style. You've got quotes at the bottom of the cards, you've got the cool pictures, and you've got a backstory for every person in this game. Every villain, every hero, they have their own backstory, they have their own nemesis, they have their own cards and play styles that are unique to that hero, so this is where it differs from Marvel Legendary. You know, you are your own hero with your own deck and your own playstyle. And you just feel you have to cooperate. You cannot just be a one-man army. You know, you have to really debate with the rest of your team what you're going to do. You have to work together, support each other. And even when you're incapacitated, you are there sort of reaching your hand out going, Take my last of my power and you must do this. You must destroy him for the good. You know, it really does feel like you are playing out a superhero movie every game and I haven't even mentioned the title it is Sentinels of the Multiverse. I just really love this game I get a kick out of playing it every single time the fact that you can tailor the team of heroes with the villain you're fighting and an environment makes a difference as well I mean the last time we played a collection of heroes it was more random what heroes we had but we fought the chairman who was kind of like a cartel lord and he has a a psychic assassin who's a bit like something you would expect out of Kill Bill or something and you know we fought in Rook City which is effectively like the region of scum and villainy so you know it was thematic there and in order to beat this villain we had to take out all his underbosses first you know you had to work your way up through his chain of command take out the lackeys first and then when he becomes available to fight then you fight him at the top and that was just really thematic as how that worked. You know, the mechanics of the game brought out what it would be like to fight a cartel overlord. You know, you had all these thugs, you had all these underbosses, they all had their abilities that supported each other, and then you had the chairman and his assassin all hurting you as well. And that's just the chairman. I've had uh, games where I fought against uh, Misinformation, who's one of the promo that you can get, and she is the Freedom Fives receptionist, and for the first half of the game, you can't even fight her because you don't know that she's a villain yet. She's just, the cards are basically diversions which hurt your heroes as you go along until you get enough clues to figure out that, hang on a minute, she's up to no good. Then when you've got the clues, she flips her card over and then you start attacking her and she reveals her true self. It's just, oh, the, if you know the backstory, uh, you have to read the backstories of the villains and the heroes. You have to understand what their motives are, particularly with the newest expansion, Vengeance, which if you look on my YouTube channel, I actually reviewed recently, that has the five-man villain team. So you can fight the Freedom Five, for example, versus their counterparts in the Vengeful Five. And, oh, that makes for a bloodbath because each one of them is a nemesis to the other. So extra damage has been dealt both ways. And, ooh, that is one of the most thematic battles you can have. It's tough, but it's really thematic, and I do strongly suggest you give that a try if you've got Vengeance. But I'm sort of blathering more on and on about this game. I can't say enough good about it. It just brings out the superhero comic book feel so strongly. It's so much fun to play. The negatives about it involving a lot of bookkeeping... Yeah, there's some bookkeeping involved, but it doesn't take long for you to get used to it. And if you're that desperate, get the iOS Sentinels app, 
which helps to track minions and hit points and that for you really easily. So you can get the hang of this game if you're used to gaming in general, but I strongly recommend it. For a cheap price, you can get the base set and that will give you plenty of variety to decide whether you want to grab the expansions and that. I've got every single one. I love this game. This is a contender for the top five in my top 10. That's going to come up very easily. This, if this doesn't end up in the top five, I'll be surprised. Sentinels in the Multiverse, fantastic. My top thematic game. And that's it, my top 10 thematic games. Just to run through a few others that didn't quite make the list, there was Robinson Crusoe, a co-op which I didn't get bowled over with the first time I played it, but I bought it and I'm gonna try out the other scenarios to see how they work, and it's fairly thematic, yes, but I don't believe it's quite as up there as people say it is. I think it's still slightly overrated, but I think the game is still solid and it does have a good theme. I'd say that was a top 15 contender pretty easily. Other ones that didn't make the list, Ghost Stories, it's got a really cool Asian theme in it, but I didn't think it was brought out as strong compared to other games here. Uh, Defenders of the Realm, which is effectively the fantasy version of Pandemic, you know, that probably would be a top 15 easily as well. And also Firefly, the game, didn't quite make it. I think that would have possibly even been number 11 on the list if I'd done a top 15 or 20. Because with Firefly, it's too long. It really needs to be shorter. But when you play that game, you feel as if you're in the Firefly universe. It's done very strongly. Unfortunately, you don't feel like you're part of the crew from the actual series, which I love. Why did it get cancelled? Fox, you idiots. But... You know, you really do feel like you're in that universe, and so the theme is strong there. So I would say Firefly was number 11, and I'll bet some of you who play this game will probably have it on your top 10 when it comes to thematic games. But that's it for now. That is it for this one, episode 20. I hope the sound quality has been a lot better with this podcast. I'm using the mixer and a lapel microphone, and I've had coaching from an expert on the subject. So hopefully these podcasts and my YouTube videos are going to improve in quality and mean that you won't have to listen to an amateurish style voice again. You're just going to have to put up with my ad-libbing and my Somerset accent as best as you can. Episode 21 will come at some point in August. Like I say, I'm going to carry on doing the podcast, but they're going to be monthly now because they take a lot of effort. You know, bear in mind, this is minimum an hour and a bit of recording, and then I've got to edit it, and then I've got to upload it. They take time and with my lifestyle with finding different jobs and uh, you know spending time with my girlfriend and playing games and that in general trying to keep myself healthy at the gym and outdoor activities it's not easy to get two podcasts as well as do everything else so people have agreed that I need to tone things down a little bit and podcasts are now going to be monthly I will continue to put the new segment in there though to add a little bit of extra content but effectively, it's still going to be the same sort of deal. So new segment, first impressions, a brief discussion topic, and then another top 10 list. Haven't decided on what the top 10 list will be next. I will put a thread up on BoardGameGeek so that you can vote on which one you like to, me to do next. I'm thinking that I would really like to do uh, top 10 games from my childhood. I would quite like to do top 10 um, annoying types of gamers maybe I know the Dice Tower are doing that soon and that sounds like quite a cool concept to do uh, top 10 fantasy games so games with a fantasy theme and 
there's plenty enough ideas that I would like, but I'll let you guys decide on what you want me to do for that one. So that's it for me, that's Luke Hector at The Broken Meeple, signing off episode 20. Thank you for listening, enjoy playing games, and I'll see you soon. You've been listening to The Broken Meeple Podcast. Please feel free to provide any useful constructive feedback on what you would like to see improved in the show. If you'd like to talk to me personally, you can find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thebrokenmeeple. You can find me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple, and you can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, just search for The Broken Meeple. The blog itself is hosted on Blogger, again, just search for The Broken Meeple, and if you wish to meet me in person, I attend free board gaming clubs during the week, that is Southampton on board on Monday nights at 7 o'clock at the Titanic Public House, the Portsmouth on Board Society on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month, at the British Legion Portsmouth, again at 7 o'clock, and also Fridays at the Chichester Board Game Club. Just search for the Chichester Gaming Society on Facebook and you can find more details there. I thank you for listening to my podcast, hope you enjoyed the show, I'll catch you next time, for now, keep playing games and enjoy.